Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to our evening Dhamma session. Last night we talked about having one good night. Tonight I thought we'd talk about one exceptionally good night, which is the night the Buddha uh, became enlightened, both for simply how inspiring it is to think of the Buddha and to think of how we're following in his footsteps. And because of how instructive it is, what um, the Buddha's experience teaches us. So a little bit of background for those who don't know. Uh, the Buddha was born in India, or what was at the time the Indus Valley. It's now modern Nepal, actually. Uh, about 2,500 years ago. So the world was quite different back then and he wandered around on foot in throughout the Indus Valley he, he left home at 29 years of age after living a life of luxury and then wandered around India until he finally decided to just spend his time uh, pushing his body to its limits purposefully torturing himself in order to burn away defilements didn't work and then after six years of that he gave up torturing himself and he went back to eating solid food and, and taking better care of himself and practicing meditation you know living a balanced life and this is why he came to talk about the middle way because the ascetics who were practicing with him abandoned him they said oh you've given up the holy life of torturing yourself so they gave him up I don't think the Buddha was disturbed by that because at this point he was pretty set on his own meditation and Imagine them leaving helped in the end because it gave him focus and allowed him to focus on his own practice. And he went and sat under the Bodhi tree, the tree that was to become. It's a very big, it's even there today, or a descendant of the original they say is still there to this day in the forest in Bodhgaya and he sat under this tree and spent the night there so this is his one good night didn't sleep he said to himself he wasn't going to he wasn't going to get up from that seat until he became enlightened and there are many stories about his time under the tree 
of course the most uh, the most flowery one that we that many people have heard about or read about or watched in various depictions is where Mara comes down with all of his armies and attacks the Buddha and confronts the Buddha and says to the Buddha, you don't deserve to sit under the tree of enlightenment. What are you doing thinking you can become enlightenment? And the Buddha reflected back on on all the all of his perfections and all of the work he had done, life time after lifetime, to become a Buddha. And he put his hand and alright, so the story goes that uh Mara says uh, all of the all of these all of these people back me, all of his armies, many demons or the idea is it's just a representation of all evil uh, Mara is in the in this legend it's just the, the armies of Mara are actually defilements in the mind. the daughters of Mara that come and tempt the Buddha, the daughters of Mara are just defilements they're just a attachment, addiction and so on um, but Mara says all of these people are my witness, you're not worthy of being here who is your witness and the Buddha looked around and he had no witness and so he put his hand on the earth and he said the earth is my witness as the earth is my witness I am worthy to become enlightened and the earth shook and sent forth water that swept away the armies of Mara I get the feeling that it was embellished over time to get to that state, that the original idea was that the Buddha was assailed by defilements, as we all are when we practice. Meditation centers are often hotbeds of defilement because we're, we're, we're letting down our guards and we're living in close quarters. I mean, it's quite amazing that all six of us can live here without tearing each other's heads off, right? Imagine a hundred people living in a meditation center and long term uh, fights do break out from time to time. These are the armies of Mara. Or it's the armies of Mara that cause conflict. So with them gone, once the Buddha's mind was purified of the defilements, and understand that when your mind is, because your mind is purified from defilements, doesn't mean you're enlightened. You can have a very, and this is why the texts are quite clear. If you talk about enlightenment as being free freedom from defilements, it's uh, you can't quite say that because it's possible for a meditator to think they have no defilements because they don't at that time. But once the Buddha's mind was pure. And he was sitting in, in states of, of clarity and bliss and calm. Then he started to take stock of... And he finally was in a position to understand the, the universe, to understand the truth. And so he started by looking at the universe. Well, he started by looking at himself, actually. Looking at the past. He remembered all the way back to his birth recollecting, reflecting on his life, the indulgence, the self-torture. And then he broke through, went through, back through the six years of torture, back through the 29 years of 
self-indulgement all the back to when he was six years old six months old how many months old I don't remember uh, sitting and lying under a tree and he entered into the jhana when he was just a baby back to when he was five days old and the ascetic asita came and proclaimed that he would be a buddha back to when he was born the day he was born in lumbini garden and legend says he actually took seven steps and proclaimed himself to be future buddha and he went back before that day into his mother's womb and back into his past lives the point is he went this is if you want to re remember your past lives you need to remember like that enter into high states of tranquility and then send your mind back and back and back we don't teach that here but now I've just taught it so someday if you ever want to try it when you're alone and you have time I know a man who actually tried it once and said he was able to remember some things and so the Buddha remembered all the way back he remembered all of his past lives not all of them of course is infinite but he remembered as far back as he wished and so he remembered things that and imagine the history if that were actually possible imagine what you could learn if you could remember not just this life but lifetime after lifetime and really get an incredible sense of cause and effect because we don't have that luxury we we can read about the Buddha's past life stories luckily 500 or so of them have been written down and retold perhaps with a little embellishment but interesting anyway what the Buddha was able to actually remember there are modern day uh, gurus who write books about these things and claim to be able to hypnotize people into remembering past lives it's interesting to read you might want to take it with a grain of salt but certainly an, an interesting thing to explore the idea of past lives the real problem is of course it's in the past and as we talked about last night it ends up being not intrinsically beneficial it's quite easy to get lost in the past caught up by it and distracted by it so he moved on I mean that was interesting and useful but a part of his, his coming to be a Buddha understanding this about rebirth but he moved on and he started to consider other beings and he entered into, or he started to see through, I mean this is all through quite powerful states of mind, he was able to apparently see beings uh, arising and passing away, so being born and dying. He was able to send his mind out and to watch, to uh, monitor the minds of others and watch them die and watch them be reborn. by knowing their minds he could watch them pass away from here and die there so was able to see the you know, on a broader sense the nature of cause and effect simply remembering his own past lives was interesting but watching all the many people and watching the the tendencies this is what gave him the uh, this understanding of karma cause and effect again it's very much all about cause and effect and this is why the Buddha 
would all the time talk about cause and effect and why the Four Noble Truths are framed in terms of cause and effect. And then finally, in the, in the third watch of the night, so this was three different things that happened. The third thing that happened is he started to look closer at the, the general picture, or the bigger picture. And so this is where he came up with what we call dependent origination or paticca samupada, where he saw that in general it's, um, it's people's cravings, it's people's desires that lead them to be reborn again. Right? People want something and then they die wanting that and they go on in that way. Or they're attached to something. Maybe they're afraid of something or averse to that thing. But that's a power. That's the, the, the tension, the fuel that leads to rebirth. And he saw that it was, it, it was because they saw, thought those things were going to bring them happiness and peace. But he also saw that none of these people ever found happiness or peace. And he realized that it was ignorance, that this was wrong, that this was where the problem was. The problem lay in thinking that wanting things or, or, or clinging to things, either positive clinging, negative clinging, that that was, that was the problem. So that's where he came up with the Four Noble Truths, that Craving is the cause of suffering, or thirst is the cause of suffering. And he came up with Paticca Samupada, this, this very important teaching that I often talk about, which is Avidya Pachaya Sankara. Sankara are all of our um, ambitions, you might say. So karma, really. When you, when you want to do something, do something good, do something evil, but all of our, our ambitions They're caused by ignorance You realize that um, th There's no ambition There's no Inclination Not inclination but no uh, No desire That can possibly satisfy you Or lead to satisfaction and you realize that that's all it took That, that once you got, got rid of that ignorance Once you got rid of your ignorance about reality Thinking that there was something you could find That was stable, satisfying, controllable Me, mine Gonna hold on to this Once you give that up You stop suffering You're free And I guess technically how it would how it worked is well, I mean not guess but how it works is um, you see right this this ignorance how the Buddha came to understand this is because he got rid of his ignorance he came to see hey these things that that I'm clinging to these things are not stable not satisfying not controllable. Which is what you're all doing here, right? Every moment when you see the things that you cling to This is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong This is me, this is mine All of our judgments When you see how stressful they are When you see that they're not really you You're not the one in control of them 
unwieldy, uncontrollable, unpredictable, and you let go of them. And that 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 ignorant that uh, knowledge that over dispels the ignorance, that's enough to free you from all suffering. The Buddha had a really good night. And, uh, you know, this is our leader, right? I don't know, you, many of us call ourselves Buddhist, it doesn't really matter, but whether you just think of the Buddha as a great guy or whether you really take the Buddha as your refuge in the sense that uh, you, you really feel that his teachings are something to dedicate your life to, it doesn't really matter, but... Um, Nonetheless, this is the guy, this is our our point of reference. I think it's quite inspiring to think of, right, because like other religions have their person, Jesus, Muhammad, Hindus have Krishna, and we have the Buddha. This is the story. But also, and the Buddha's enlightenment is the, is the enlightenment in, to many in many ways the enlightenment that we're striving for. Not completely. We may never remember our past lives or be able to see other people being born and dying, but we sure can understand the cause of suffering and free ourselves from it through understanding suffering. So there you go. A little bit of dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for coming out. I have a few questions here. Can you be totally free from attachments if you still want to eat enough to live and have the intention to meditate? Want to eat enough to live? Probably not, because that's kind of an attachment. Um, so an enlightened being doesn't have that want, which means... In, I mean, we're talking, a, 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 we're talking someone who's gone to the end, right? Because enlightenment is sort of a gradual thing. You, once you've seen Nibbana, you still have attachments. It's just they're quite weakened because there's no wrong view to support them. Wrong view is gone. So you don't think it's right that you want to eat and want to live, but you still do. You still haven't worked it all out. But because you don't think it's right, it'll eventually peter out and fade away. Um... 
But once you become completely enlightened, then in many cases, yes, there is a just a starving to death because you really aren't concerned with it. I mean, this was a thing in India already. Starving to death is kind of a religious thing in in India, because you know before the Buddha, they were thinking, you know, this is a way to free yourself from attachment, right? Just, but but because they still had the attachment to food, it was just a forcing, and that doesn't work. But um, you know, it's interesting, horrific for most people. I think, how could you possibly do such a thing? And quite interesting from a philosophical point of view. I mean, if you're free from suffering, why, why, why would you worry about eating to live? These strong emotions are dominating during my formal meditation. Should I stay with them until they go away, as I'm doing now at the cost of doing much less walking during a session, or ignore them and get back to focusing? If they don't, if they don't go away, you can you can ignore them. Um, but it's often good to change postures if they're really strong. I mean, it's something you generally just have. To, there's no answer. I mean, I don't have a solution for you. So don't don't expect me to be able to fix that for you. It's something you have to be patient with, and it's it's great that you're you're seeing them and and learning about them. Just take your time to learn more about them and understand them better. So I mean, in the end, it's not going to matter so much what you do. Just try to be flexible, and over time they will recede. They'll become more manageable. Because a lot of those kind of things have to do with the time when before we were mindful, before we were practicing meditation. So just don't feed them. Would you say mindfulness is the same? Uh, I, I've already given a talk on mindfulness. So I'm not going to answer that because I want you to... If, if you, I gave my answer to what mindfulness is. So I'm not going to say mindfulness because you're the second person who's asked this recently makes me wonder whether I actually explained it well enough. Maybe I didn't. But I hope that you go and read that and I hope it does explain it. If not, you could read my booklet because that should give you some idea. Hopefully. It feels like there's no excuse to not drop everything. No excuse to drop. No excuse to not drop everything and follow a monk life. However, this feels wrong somehow. Is this something you work towards as a result of craving, or is this sense of extremism and unwholesome? Thumb up, check, remove, circle. Um, no, I don't. I mean, it's it's a bit vague what you're saying, but I'm assuming. That you mean, uh, I'm assuming what, what's going on here is this conflicting sense of of uh, what's right, because of course it's probably I would assume it's fairly new to you this idea that becoming a monk is the right thing to do, and and what's been ingrained into your mind is that the right thing to do is be a responsible member of society. So it's just a question of when you can let go of that wrong view or wrong perception because there's no reason to support society society is just a bunch of people running around doing meaningless things well maybe not entirely meaningless but um, in the end I mean in the end it's all meaningless so 
there's no I mean meaningless in the point in the sense that there's no reason to support it right the the only reason one could have is in terms of helping each other in terms of uh, helping each other be free from suffering which is a fairly big and and um, complicated goal so I mean that's the sense that I think society is important useful and we have Buddhist society monk monastic society and and it's important um, but to that end I mean what helps people the most what helps you, you or anyone else the most I mean, it's obviously becoming enlightened so I mean there should be no conflict here it's just that most likely you're conflicted as a non-Buddhist become Buddhist or and I mean that's interesting it's interesting how even in Asia that's the case people who grew up as quote-unquote Buddhists have this same conflict because they're also taught the wrong way they're also taught that the way to live a, the way to do the right thing is to uh, make lots of money and be successful and maybe support your parents as well but become a monk no that's not responsible that's irresponsible Hopefully you get over that. Okay, that's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for coming up.